Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The body of a homeless woman is found in an abandoned New Hampshire farmhouse. Beside the body lies a diary that documents a journey of starvation and loss of sanity, told with poignance, beauty, humor, and spirituality. For nearly four months, Linda Bishop, a prisoner of her own mind, survived on apples and rainwater, waiting for God to save her during one of the coldest winters on record. As her story unfolds from different perspectives, including her own, we learn about our systemic failure to protect those who cannot protect themselves. The film is called... God Knows Where I Am, and the co-directors of the film are Todd and Jed Weider. We're honored to have them with us today here on Film School. Um, Todd and Jed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Well, um, uh, Todd, how did you find out about the story behind Linda Bishop? Well, the original inspiration for the film came from an experience I had with an encounter with a homeless man who was broken into the place I live in New York City. And I had tried to get him some help, <clears throat> and basically didn't get very far. And Jed and I decided, you know, we've done a, a number of, we've produced a number of documentaries that all have some sort of social-political resonance issues that concern us, instead of what those films generally are about. So we decided to focus on homelessness and the severely mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And uh, when looking for that story, we found an article by Rachel Aviv, a writer in the New Yorker, uh, a wonderful writer, and she's written a, a great um, piece in the New Yorker about Linda Bishop. So that was the beginning of, the, of how we got into it. Uh, and then, of course, we proceeded to um, get in touch with Jones. You know, when you talk about uh, documentaries, you, you sort of need access. Access is a basic concept of making a documentary, I think. And so, in this case, we needed access to the family, frankly, but also to her diary. Is there a key? component in telling her story. She had left diaries behind. Mm-hmm. And Joan had, uh, they were in the possession of Joan. Joan owns them. And Joan is Linda's sister. So we reached out to Joan and that was the beginning of um, the, the real entrance into, into the story. Jed, in terms of, after you've contacted the family, uh, sort of uh, gaining confidence with them, uh, the, the was there a, a learning curve in that re- in that regard? Or or did they understand what you were trying to uh, accomplish with your film right away? No, I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I think when you uh, when you reach out to anyone in um, in making a documentary, especially where you have a series of uh, very tragic circumstances, uh, it's always a sensitive matter. Um, you know, we spent a significant amount of time with Joan and also with with Caitlin, uh, Linda's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 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 um, uh, it was very important that we conveyed our message very clearly and how we were intending to approach the film. You know, at the end of the day, you know, our, our objective here was, you know, paying tribute, uh, to a woman who died so tragically, mm-hmm. um, and being very respectful of her, her circumstances, uh, but also at the same time addressing the larger issues um, uh, that our country faces in terms of uh, treating the severely mentally ill and the homeless as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a, a moving port. Uh, it's it's such a moving film. Um, we'll get into sort of the the technical side of of this a little bit, but um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the actual story itself. Um, and I we described it in the opening, but I think it bears a little more um, uh, going into. Linda Bishop wandered away from her home. Tell us a little bit about sort of the the circumstances surrounding. Uh, Linda finding herself in this in this home that uh, that was uh, that she spent the winter in. So Linda was uh, Linda was released uh, from a uh, state psychiatric hospital uh, in New Hampshire um, through an unconditional discharge. Uh, no safety net was put in place for her um, uh, as she as she was discharged. And in October, several years ago, she basically walked right out uh, the front door of the hospital. Um, and she wandered down a path uh, for many miles, came to an area where the homeless lived, lived with the homeless uh, for several days. Uh, and from there, uh, she wandered down another path for several miles and eventually came to an abandoned uh, historic farmhouse in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, she broke into that farmhouse. It was owned by a brother and a sister who lived about an hour and a half away. Um, but was, uh, for the most part, uh, left abandoned. Uh, the house was for sale. Uh, there were neighbors across the street uh, who, you know, looked through their windows from time to time just to check on the house. And the brother and sister would come down periodically uh, just to do a once-through and, and, and check to make sure that uh, there was nothing wrong with the house. Um, but she broke, into, she broke into the house, and there she lived uh, for four months um, in the beginning of October, uh, through January, uh, through uh, one of the coldest winters on record uh, in New Hampshire. And she lived on apples that she collected from an apple orchard in the backyard of the property uh, and water that she collected from a brook that ran through the back of the property as well. She would go out at night to collect apples so she would not be seen. Uh, and eventually, as winter set in and um, temperatures dropped significantly, um, and her apple uh, supply began to diminish, uh, she became weaker and weaker uh, and eventually was unable to uh, go out at night uh, to look for food, to, for more apples, uh, or even look for water. And she began to collect icicles from the window uh, and melt those icicles for water. Uh, and that's what she maintained herself on uh, until her food supply uh, ran out completely. Um. Todd, I, I, let's establish something because she was she was diagnosed as a severe bipolar disorder with a psychosis. So when you this unconditional release that you just described, uh, Jed, that it, it's it, it's important to know. I mean, that sounds to the untrained ear to be a very serious condition and something that would require some follow up. Some and I think that we're talking about kind of the heart of your of your film here. But Todd, in terms of her mental state basically she's an intelligent woman i think we need to for, for some people i think we still need to separate the fact that intelligence and disorder mental disorders are not they are mutually exclusive sometimes and uh, so i want to she had the intelligence obviously she put together this beautiful diary that she kept um is that i mean i just think it's an important distinction for people to make is she was obviously had mental issues mental health issues but she was an intelligent person uh, and had a lot of of insight into herself, into the world around her. Um, would you like to comment on that? Does that sound reasonable? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, look, bipolar disease is very common in the United States. Bipolar uh, people um, often are very creative and actually are often highly intelligent. Uh, so intelligence and mental illness uh, really have very little to do with each other, frankly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the issue with her is that she did suffer from severe bipolar disease, and in her case, she had a psychosis as well. Psychosis in bipolar cases occurs in 2 or 3 percent, or something like that, a small number, but it affects the people particularly ill, and they can experience uh, delusionality in their thinking. Uh, they, they have sort of waxing and waning insight into their condition. I mean, clearly she did not have complete insight into their condition because she wound up, you know, breaking into an abandoned farmhouse and decided to stay in that building and live there despite the fact that, you know, this is not her home and there was no heater electricity and basically no food rather than the apples and water. Yeah. So she, she was missing, in essence, a real insight into uh, the danger uh, of her situation. Uh, certainly she was missing that and she was, one could argue, had, had a sort of profound sort of cognitive impairment into uh, her own sort of... Uh, situation that she has put herself in and the dangers of life. Um, in, in life, medicated, Linda Bishop was highly functional. She was able to hold the job down, raise her daughter, had many friends, interacted well with her environment, was very productive, had a great sense of humor, liked to cook, uh, liked looking at art, you know, things that every, many of us like to do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but unmedicated, uh, she, was, she was subject to these... Um, very significant um, loose wings and had this psychosis and also had a paranoia. She had a paranoid ideation as well. Yeah. And the more times she off the medication, the worse she got. So the issue with her being discharged is that, of course, uh, unfortunately in her case, uh, her sister had, uh, had petitioned the court in New Hampshire to be named her legal guardian. And uh, because the judge spent really not enough time to make an appropriate judgment, only two or three minutes, he found Linda competent during those two minutes. And as the sister mentions in the film, if he had spent another five minutes talking to her, she would have talked about the Chinese mafia that she had her, you know. So he would have seen that she was not really competent to be her own guardian. Yeah. So he ruled that she could maintain her own guardianship over herself. And as a result of that, despite the fact that she had been committed for three years in the state mental facility, since she was her own guardian, she was able to say that, you know, I don't want to take medicine anymore, I don't want any therapy, I want to leave. And after a certain period of time, the doctors decided, well, she's not taking therapy, she's not uh, taking medicine, and she wants to leave, uh, so one of, let's try discharging her. I think the mistake that was made, and, that, and there were many mistakes made in what happened, but... In, in that moment, the mistake that was made is they could have said, look, we were discharged you conditioned upon us calling your sister or your daughter or your best friend to pick you up or whomever. But they didn't. They said, okay, you are discharged uh, unconditionally, and as she walked, and she actually wandered 10 miles away yeah. down the road uh, over several days um, and wound up encountering this farmhouse. And it, 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 it's the only encounter the farmhouse, actually, which is sort of interesting. It just shows how little things can have very tragic consequences because he heard a plane overhead. He thought the plane was looking at for in this sort of paranoid moment, you know. 
And then she backed up, was starting to rain, she backed up, and she you know, literally bumped into the farmhouse and yeah. it was just in the countryside. And she decides that that's going to be, you know, her new, her new home. Um, and, uh, you know, at the, at, in that moment, it might have seemed like a charming, you know, sort of dreamy choice. But, of course, that, that unfortunately winds up leading to very, a very tragic outcome, yeah. you know. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Todd and Jed Whiter. The film is God Knows Where I Am. It is opening here in Los Angeles on April 7th at the uh, Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Terrific film um, theater for people who love movies. Great place to go and see this beautiful film. And I, I want to get into the technical accomplishment that this film is, uh, but uh, I understand that uh, you'll be out here for a Q&A for, uh, for the film um, when it yeah. opens. Okay. Yeah, we'll be out there for the first weekend it opens. Very good. Excellent. Again, God knows where I am. It'll be at the Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. And I know it's opening up around the country. You can go to the, the website, godknowswhereiam.com, to find out more about the film as well as the screenings. And, the, and as well as I'm going to point out the, uh, the sort of the resources for people who, uh, who are um, intimately and not so intimately uh, familiar with mental health disorders uh, and to find out more about how you can um, better help those who, um, who are in need of uh, mental health uh, therapies and just just to find out more about the subject, uh, it, it's touched. I I can't imagine anyone listening to the sound of my voice that hasn't been touched in some way by a loved one or even themselves dealing with mental health issues. And so it's such a critical need on on all of our parts to be to be part of the solution, helping these people and helping ourselves as well. Um, you did a wonderful job. One of the true strengths of uh, God Knows Where I Am is your ability to externalize the interior landscape of Linda Bishop. Um, I'll leave it, it I'll get, make that a jump ball as to you sort of how you went about going into her mind. And, and, and obviously the diary was a, was a part of uh, being able to do that. But just what went into the, your, um, your uh, process in terms of bringing out uh, that part of the story. Sure. Yeah. So why, why, why don't I start, and then Todd can talk about some okay. more of the specifics, okay. uh, more of the details, and some of the very uh, uh, select choices that we made in terms of um, in terms of uh, cameras and, um, yeah. and, and and certainly film stock as well. Um, we, you know, when when we set out to make this film, uh, you know, the greatest challenge of making this film is the fact that our protagonist uh, was not alive, and um, through that process. Um, it became important to um, to display the voice uh, in some fashion um, of Linda. Um, if she wasn't alive, uh, we had access to numerous people that she had touched during her life uh, and that she had touched in death as well. Uh, but most importantly, uh, we had her own words through uh, her journals that she left behind. Um, uh, in that farmhouse uh, that she had written almost daily uh, during the four months that she lived uh, in the farmhouse. Uh, and those journals are incredibly poetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very beautiful. Um, there are references uh, to, um, uh, to the human condition, to, uh, to astrology, to painting, uh, to art, uh, to life that she viewed outside the window as she sat uh, in an attic looking out of the window. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it, you know, those observations really underscore uh, the human condition and her own human condition and what her thoughts were, what she was thinking, what she was feeling during that period of time. So we had an incredibly rich, vibrant, and very poetic um, journal, and the challenge for us became how to convey Linda's own words, yeah. whether to do that through um, displaying those words on screen, um, whether to do some sort of voiceover. And we ultimately decided that what we really wanted to do um, was to have an actress read uh, the words um, of Linda. And uh, we knew we had wanted to work with Laurie Singer, um, who has been in, uh, who has acted in many, many films mm-hmm. over the years, uh, Shortcuts and Footloose, to just name a couple. Um, and uh, Laurie spent a significant amount of time with the journal, uh, in many instances actually studying how uh, the pen that Linda had held and imprinted the paper with, uh, how deeply she had imprinted the paper with, uh, to determine, um, possibly determine um, how manic Linda was during that period of time, and that then dictated for Lori um, uh, how she should convey certain words um, that, uh, that, that, that uh, Linda had written. Uh, and Lori, we think, gave a, a, just a mesmerizing performance, yes. a very sensitive, very well-balanced uh, performance. And she really, I mean, it, 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 it really is a performance by her. Uh, and we were incredibly pleased. Uh, and I think most importantly, um, uh, Linda's sister uh, and Linda's daughter were very pleased um, uh, with, 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 the, uh, with the performance uh, by Lori. Um, but that was one aspect of, of, and that was an important aspect, an essential element of what we were trying to accomplish. I mean, when we set out, we knew, since we had the voice through the journal, um, what we wanted to do was to create what we called an experiential type of documentary. We wanted the audience to experience what Linda, what we believed Linda was experiencing while she lived in that farmhouse. Uh, the sounds that she heard at night or during the day. Um, what it sounded like to sit in a house uh, in sub-zero weather alone at night with no electricity uh, and what those sounds were, um, what she saw through the window. You know, as Todd said, you know, Linda was an incredibly intelligent, um, artistic woman. Uh, she was an art history major. She saw things incredibly visually. Um, and so we wanted to pay tribute to the visual style and the visual way in which Linda looked at life. Um, and so uh, as a result of that, uh, not only the voice became important, um, but the soundscape of the film became incredibly important as well. And uh, the sounds that we captured that you hear in the film were all recorded uh, at the house uh, almost over a, a full two-year period where we filmed in and outside of the, uh, the farmhouse uh, where Linda lived. Uh, and that became uh, incredibly important as well. But the visuals also became very important. The cinematography became really incredibly critical uh, because that really mirrored the way um, in which um, Linda saw things. Um, and and um, that ultimately dictated very specific choices that we made in terms of cameras that we used for specific reasons um, and whether we shot 
uh, in 35 or Super 16 or 16 or digital video uh, in the film. And Todd, maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, the, the um, it's an interesting, you know, creative choice to have as a, as a director. And I think what we wanted to do, you know, in some respects was to find a relationship that was meaningful between content and form in this medium. You know, in general, in the documentary space, it seems these days, not always, but it seems that content becomes a sort of primary focus. You know, many documentaries are very journalistic-oriented, they're news stories, which is fine, you know. Um, but there's a long tradition in documentary filmmaking of making pieces of art, of making cinematic art that can be projected in the theater that you can watch and experience as a piece of cinematic art. And in, in this particular case, where you had an absent protagonist who was basically bringing them back to life through reading the diary, but also what we're documenting and what we're exploring are her own visual and auditory perceptions of the environment in which she was living during that period of time. You know, it made sense to, in a way, um, echo the content with the form of which we were making this film. So we turned to different types of film stocks for very specific thematic reasons. We used Super 16, for example, to capture certain food shots for certain reasons. We used 35 millimeter to look at other shots in the film. And, and we used very specific kinds of cameras. We used an old Bell and Howell um, IMO camera, which is a exactly World War II camera that we use for specific reasons. We use a, a journalism camera from the late 60s as well. So we use these different devices and different sort of film stock things to try to create certain patinas, certain senses of nostalgia. Um, and also the film itself has thematic resonance for us. So um, as I said, we were trying to essentially make... Um, and, and, and piece of art that you could experience, it, it's not a typical doc. It, it really is not. It feels more like, and we've been very immersed in this space for many years. This is sort of a departure in a way, because it feels like um, a documentary fused with a feature. You know, it begins as a, a mystery, really. It begins with a mystery. A body is found in the house. Uh, in a way, tipping the hat to a film, like, you know, in the past, like Rushamon, where you have body and and a bunch of stories as to how the body got there. And yeah. in a similar way, you know, God knows where unfolds in the beginning with the body in the house, how did they get there? Was this person from the suicide? Was she murdered? Did she live there? Did she die in that building? Was she, did she die elsewhere? Was she brought there? Was that her home? Was it someone else's home? Whose home was that? Was the homeowner still home? You know? Yeah. And then you begin to hear different views of, you know, the cancer body, the sleep, the medical death. And the story begins to unfold, and finally you hear the final view, the final viewpoint, the final voice of Linda Bishop herself. Yeah. And uh, just as we assess how we identify truth, um, you really question each voice to a certain extent. Who is telling the truth, and what is the truth? You know, it's, it's different views of what happened. Will we ever really know exactly what happened? Do we know exactly what Linda Bishop was doing in that building? No, we don't, but we have an idea. Yeah. We have different views of what she's doing there, including the view of her own. But can you trust any of those views? And in a way, it's an exploration truth as well, which is why it's a documentary. Yeah. Um, so that's why we, we, we turn to this very sort of uh, aesthetic and we hope cinematic way of telling this 
film, and telling a story through film, and it, it really does feel a lot different in a theater than it would be on your iPhone or on your, your television screen or in your computer at home. It'd be great if people could see it in the theater because yeah. it really does surround you when you, when you watch the film. It's recorded and, and, and uh, displayed in, in sort of surround sound. We mix different voices differently. There's, as Jeff was saying, there's this auditory environment which totally surrounds you while you're in the film. Um, you hear noises from the house all over the place, and it's very cinematic. You have a 35-millimeter with amazing projectors. So it it would be great if people could come out and see it because it will be a different experience to feel in the theater than um, you know to download on demand later when it comes on DVD. Let, let me just very quickly, and um, just in a minute or so that we have left, um, I also want to just make an observation about the film. First of all, I completely concur. It is a beautiful film to look at. It really, truly is. The cinematography is outstanding. I feel like we need to mention the cinematographer, and um, please, uh, I've forgotten his name. Please. So the, uh, the cinematographer of the film uh, is Gerardo Puglia. Thank you. Uh, Gerardo um, uh, stems from a long-standing um, uh, uh, Italian training and background, yeah. uh, trained with many of the greats uh, and learned from many of the greats, yeah. uh, including yeah. Vittorio Storaro and Gordon Willis, uh, among others. Um, and uh, he resides uh, in Princeton. His wife is a professor uh, in Italian uh, film and Italian history at uh, um, uh, at Princeton as well, yeah. and he was just truly, truly outstanding. Um, yeah. well, uh, incredibly visual, uh, a true artist. It comes across in the work, but I, I want to make an observation about the film, which Linda Bishop, by design or by happenstance, has has by her life and her journey to this farmhouse created kind of a metaphor for people with mental illness, isolated alone in sort of captive by their by the illness that that beleaguers them and and the outside world around her within reach uh is is passing by without notice and i i think in some ways that is much about what the issues surrounding mental health are about is people feeling isolated un- alone unable to cope and um, and uh, it's uh, it comes across beautifully in uh, God knows where I am. Thank you so well, much. That's a very good point yeah. uh, that you bring up. Yeah. And that is a key part of of uh, this kind of mental illness, where you have you do isolate, and yeah. uh, despite the fact that. And the other thing that's sort of interesting is that those around you don't really understand what you're going through yeah. because they haven't experienced it. Yeah. So you do isolate, and that, of course, makes it work. Yeah, and you're right, and, and we appreciate that you, you bring it up. It was a very convincing, very clean observation. The film really is a metaphor for uh, the isolation of mental illness and the stories as well. Yeah, I, I just think of her, as you described earlier, her alone in the, the second story of this farmhouse, uh, looking out of, at the world around her as it as it as it moves by her and uh, without, you know, without an ability to connect with it and uh, in ways that cost her dearly. And uh, 
Um, it, well, congratulations to both of you, uh, Todd and Jed Wider. The film, again, is God Knows Where I Am. Again, it will be opening here in Los Angeles at the Monica uh, Film Center in Santa Monica. They'll be in town for a Q&A for that weekend, uh, Friday and Saturday um, screenings as well. So check it out. Check it out at GodKnowsWhereIAm.com. And again, not only is the uh, information about the film, but also for people who are interested in finding out more about how they can be part of a solution, part of understanding mental illness in ways uh, that we desperately need. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much, and hope sometime uh, when another uh, project comes along, you'll find time to come back here and join us on Film School. Thank you. Thanks so thank much. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.